0: Hello, and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia, but I'm currently in the University of Copenhagen in Denmark as a Danish Diabetes Academy visiting professor. So I'm realizing I'm going to have to change the background there because that's Melbourne. The goal of Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So the top researchers in the world in exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise and health. So what i want is for you to get your exercise information from the world leading researchers rather than influencers today i'm bringing to you professor wendy court from the university of colorado who's an absolute expert and the person you first think of when you think of exercise and bone we all know exercise is good for bone but interestingly she's going to point out that during exercise especially prolonged exercise you can actually get breakdown of bone and that's something that really should be considered. I found it really interesting. So stick around. Hi, Wendy. How are you? Welcome to Inside Exercise.
1: Thanks, Glenn. Happy to finally be here with you.
0: Oh, yeah. You're, you're a busy person. And we'll, we'll talk about um, your bone research, of course, but also the, oh, I don't even know how to say it, the molecular transducers of physical exercise. I know you're heavily involved with that as well. Yeah, motor do you pack. Say that acronym?
1: Motor uh, pack. Oh, yes. That's
0: a good name. I like that. Yeah, Yeah, I had Scott Trappy on a a, a bit ago and he's involved with that as well. So it's interesting. Um, Yeah, so we're going to talk about how bone is actually catabolic during exercise or can be. And that's going to be really interesting because, you know, people know exercise is good for bone. But if you're saying it's actually during exercise, it might be breaking down bone, perhaps. But um, first of all, I just want to get a bit of a background. So you're in Colorado, maybe a bit of a background where you're at. And how you actually got into the research you know you were an exercise person initially a sports person then you got interested in exercise research or um, you know you were a researcher first then you got into exercise how'd you end up where you're at
1: i i got here through uh good fortune and a lot of opportunities that were created for me i um i was an athlete in college i i played both volleyball and basketball but that was before the time that women in the United States were allowed to participate in the NCAA, um, oh, really? so it was wow. eons ago. but um, athletics was um, it was it gave me that the self-confidence that I had lacked at, at that mm-hmm. point in in my life um, made me realize, um, that I could do things that I never thought I could do before. And just it just set me on a, on a path in life that I don't think I would have been on had I not been, been an athlete. And initially I, um, I, I majored in physical education and math as an undergrad, and I taught junior high math for four years and, and coached at the senior high level. I coached volleyball, basketball, and softball. Um, And when I went to Arizona State to get my master's in exercise science, it was in the intent with the intent of trying to get a college coaching position. But while I was there, the Board of Regents in Arizona approved a doctoral program in exercise science. And uh, Jim Skinner, who had joined the faculty recently, asked me if I would stay and be his first doctoral student in the program And I agreed to do that, Um, still not quite knowing what my career path looked like, Um, but probably, oh, I don't know, six months before I was going to finish, uh, I was meeting with Jim, one of our regular meetings, and he started out by saying, so Wendy, what are you gonna do after you graduate? And before I could even say, I don't know, he said, I'll tell you what you're gonna do. You're gonna to go to Washington University in St. Louis and do a postdoctoral fellowship with John Holisey. Yeah, and was, at the time I thought, gosh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> it was awesome. And mm-hmm. um, I was thinking there's, you know, no way John would, would bring me into that illustrious lab, but John and uh, Jim had connections that went back to the 1960s, their uh, public health service Time. And um, so I, I started my postdoctoral fellowship um, in, in the Holsey Lab and ended up staying there for 13 years. So I moved to a faculty position and that was, um, it was just such a um, a, a fertile uh, training opportunity and a place to develop my career. I learned so much during that time, but um decided to leave there in 1999. I was recruited to come out to Colorado. And um, so I've been here almost 24 years. And this has also been an absolutely um, exceptional place for for me to um, carry out the rest of my career. I'll I'll tell you how I I got interested in bone because I I remember the day it happened. John had a program project, so multi-project um, NIH grant, that was focused on physiological adaptations to exercise in the elderly, with elderly then being age 60 or older. And um, he was, this would have been in 1989, he was in the process of uh, starting his competing renewal application. And uh, dexa instruments dual energy x-ray absorptiometry mm-hmm. the instrument that's that's used to measure bone density in humans had just come on the market recently so for the first time we were able to measure precisely measure bone mineral density at regions of the skeleton the hip and the spine that are very susceptible to osteoporotic fractures so uh, um, I Ran into John in the hallway one day, and he stopped me and said, Wendy, we need to have a bone project in the next uh, version of the program project. And since you're the only woman in the lab, um, you're you're the appropriate person to take the lead on that. Well, there's a lot of things wrong with that statement, but... At the time, um, I was actually doing glucose and fat metabolism studies, Um, but my thought, I didn't say this out loud, but my thought was, gosh, watching bones grow is as exciting as watching grass grow, Uh, except uh, grass grows faster. Um, But it was an extremely opportune time, so I agreed to do this, and and I wasn't actually the lead because I was still a postdoc, just going to be transitioning to an assistant professor, but I was working, would work closely with an endocrinologist on this project, Stan Burge, and it turned out to be a great opportunity for me because this, um, it was funded. Um, At that time, I, I had, you had to submit an R award to the NIH before you could actually submit a K award, a career development award, So I submitted an R29 application right after that and I got that funded. So this really set me on a a career path for success. And I've managed to keep my bone research funded um, since 1990. Um, And it it was that early work that really um, got me thinking that unlike a lot of other adaptations to exercise. It was very difficult to predict who was going to respond favorably in terms of of changes in bone mineral density. You know, I had some, I was doing studies in women at that time. Um, There were some women who were great uh, exercisers. They had, you know, these remarkable increases in VO2 max, improvements in other um, health parameters. And they would end up having a decrease, a loss of bone over their exercise training. So I got thinking very early on that there must be factors that were missing um, that are determinants of how bone responds to exercise. And so I've started um, looking at some of those, you know, some of my um, Work 10 to 15 years ago was focused on the use of non steroidal anti inflammatory drugs. Because when I started working on this first grant um, for John, um, I remember being in the library because he actually had to go to the library to get journal articles Mm -hmm. in those days Mm -hmm. and seeing a paper in 1989 that. Um, Indomethacin blocked the bone formation response in animals, in rats. Indomethacin is an NSAID. And, you know, that got me thinking well, geez, almost everybody I know who exercises regularly pops ibuprofen like their chiclets. Um, and mm. if, if that actually does block the bone formation response, that could be an important determinant of of why bone sometimes fails to adapt as as we might expect. And we have done studies to show that NSAID use, primarily before exercise, could be deleterious for bone. And that's because prostaglandin E2 is um, an essential signaling factor in the activation of bone formation. Um, and in the animal studies, when you block that before mechanical stress is applied to bone, there is essentially no bone formation response generated. Whereas if you introduce mm-hmm. that NSAID after the exercise or the stress has been applied to bone, then if, you don't get the full response, but you you get a a nearly complete bone formation okay. response.
0: So this is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So you're, not, you're saying you actually need inflammation. During exercises essentially. Well, you
1: need you need the pro you need prostaglandin E2. Um, uh-huh. So um, um, NSAIDs work by blocking cyclooxygenase, the enzyme uh-huh. that generates prostaglandins. So if you diminish the availability yeah. of prostaglandin E2 specifically, that uh-huh. could limit um, how bone responds to mechanical loading. And prostaglandins
0: play a role in blood flow too, don't they?
1: Uh, They play a role in many, many, many things. Many,
0: many. It's interesting that that came up because um, I've had a couple of people on talking about uh, muscle injuries and and how people take anti-inflammatories and how, you know, the timing of it. So it's kind of similar to what you're saying, the timing of it, because you, you want to actually have a, you know, if you've done an injury, you actually want to have an inflammatory response. So you don't, it's maybe not always good to block it. Now, if I could step back a bit, it's very interesting because John Lossie, you know, is a legend. Of course, he was. I know he's passed away, but um, with mitochondria and then glucose uptake. And I, during my PhD and my career, I was, I was looking at glucose uptake during exercise and the regulation of it. And the classic paper that I'd often be quoting was was Andy Coggins' paper, um, you know, with glucose uptake being lower during exercise after training. And you're on that. And you, so it's really quite interesting that you could have quite very easily, if you were a female, I guess, been <laughs> working on uh, glucose metabolism or mitochondrial function, or. But as you said, you got a niche, yeah. That's. Um...
1: Yeah, it did. It did carve out a unique path for me to follow that no one else in our lab um had been going down. Actually, Gail Dolsky had had been at WashU before I got there, and. She had done um a study on exercise and bone while I was there, so i I got some knowledge by working side by side with Gail but she she left shortly thereafter so i was uh, I was free to carve out my own path.
0: Well, you're definitely the person I always think of when I think about exercise and bone so you've you've had a great uh, effect on me anyway so we talked a little bit before we started you know, how we might talk about this so. Talk about what's happening with bone you know during exercise so during the exercise and then after the exercise and then naturally the chronic effects which people tend to to think about more so can we can we sort of start with that so what's actually happening during exercise like hormonal changes etc blood flow that's affecting bone and you know calcium levels and loss of calcium and sweat all, all that sort of stuff
1: yeah well let me tell you the story about how we ended up where we are today. I think in um, oh, 2004, 2005, I had an internist join my lab who um, thought he wanted to get some clinical research experience. This was Dan Barry. He was a former competitive road cyclist um, and road cyclist as, a, uh, cyclist as a group of athletes tend to have low bone mineral density. So Dan was very interested in that. And for his first independent project, he decided to follow a group of competitive road cyclists for a year and measure their bone density roughly every three months. So in Colorado, um, it's about nine months competitive season and training, and then three months off season but they're able to ride most of of the year. So it isn't really too much of an off-season. And um, I think the dogma at that point was that cyclists um, didn't get the benefits of weight-bearing exercise because cycling is a weight-supported exercise. So they just didn't have high bone mineral density. But that actually showed that they... Uh, their bone mineral density decreased over time. And looking just at the hip, um, it was almost a 2% decrease, which is not unlike the accelerated rate of bone loss that we see in postmenopausal women after the loss of ovarian estrogens. Mm -hmm. Um, And these were young men, 20 to 40 years of age. They shouldn't have been losing any bone. So this was the first hint that it's not that they just don't get the benefit of exercise, mm. that there's actually something causing them to lose bone. And we sat down and talked through some potential hypotheses on what we thought could be happening. Um, one thought was that during the exercise per se, since you know, cyclists spend, especially competitive cyclists, spend a lot of time on their bikes, that there are increases in stress hormones and inflammatory uh, markers, and many of those have um, uh, pro-resorptive effects on bone. They cause bone breakdown. They increase bone resorption. So that was that was plausible. We also thought that over a a period of time in training, maybe there is um, um, a conditions of low energy availability that may or may not result in in weight loss. Just low energy availability Mm -hmm. without weight loss can increase bone resorption. And if there is weight loss, we almost always see bone loss accompanying weight loss. And then a third factor that that is in this uh, grouping is that if there is low energy availability for a persistent period of time, that typically suppresses the gonadal axis. So there can be decreases Mm -hmm. in androgens and estrogens. And both of those also would be predicted to increase catabolic activity in bones. So
0: clarify for people. Sorry, can we clarify for people? So in males, you say lower testosterone and females? Can we just clarify what we're talking about with the,
1: with the whole... Yeah, both period? both uh, low estro- low testosterone in men. And it may not be the testosterone because mm. testosterone is converted to estrogen. So if there's low testosterone, there's probably also low estrogen levels. Um, it's probably mm. the low estrogen that is specifically affecting bone, but testosterone also okay. affects bone. And in women, mm. it's low estrogen levels. Both okay. of those get
0: suppressed. Okay. Can I clarify, are you saying the 2% over the year, uh, you know, and there was a control group that had no change or like
1: what? We didn't have a control group. Um, okay. But there have certainly been studies that have done serial measurements uh, of bone in non-athletes of this age. So you know, from the ages of twenty to forty, you you, yes. you would you wouldn't expect sure. to see any remarkable changes in in bone mineral density in men over a one year time span.
0: Okay, and two percent is is quite substantial. Yeah, okay,
1: it is. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had two good um, areas that we thought were plausible to look at, but the third one, and this was Dan's idea, was to look at uh, calcium loss, dermal calcium loss during exercise because um, athletes sweat a lot, there's calcium and sweat. If cyclists are spending 20 hours on their, um, on their bikes, they could be losing substantial amounts of calcium through sweating. Um, I let Dan pick which of these three areas he wanted to pursue. I had put them in the order that I thought um, was most likely, um, you know, the inflammatory cytokines, um, disruption of energy balance, and then uh, loss of, of dermal calcium. Um, but he picked he picked the last one. And boy, am I glad he did because this has, proven to be just, I just shake my head at what we've learned over the last 10 to 15 years in this area. So we developed a working model. um, One -hmm. of the things I require in my lab. So the hypothesis was that dermal calcium loss during an exercise session would Mm -hmm. result in a decrease in the serum calcium level. And serum calcium is something that our bodies defend very vigorously because if calcium levels drop too low, um, initially you can just have some muscle cramping um, types of problems. But if they drop too far, you know, the mm-hmm. heart is a muscle, calcium is necessary for mu- muscle uh, contraction. You know, one of the consequences can be cardiac arrest. So if there is a decrease in serum calcium during exercise, we have to have a very robust counter-regulatory mechanism to make sure that it doesn't decrease to harmful levels. So as soon as serum calcium levels start to decrease by just very small amounts, within minutes you get an increase in parathyroid hormone Mm -hmm. secretion, PTH. And PTH can conserve or defend serum calcium levels three ways. It can work on the kidney to reduce urinary calcium excretion. It can work on the gut to enhance calcium absorption, or it can go to the calcium bank. It can go to bone and mobilize calcium to make it immediately available And that third one is the one that happens the fastest. So we postulated that as serum calcium declined, PTH would go up and um, that that would then trigger a catabolic effect in bone to mobilize calcium and make sure that serum calcium levels do not decrease to harmful levels. From that point, we designed a series of experiments to test this whole model. So, the first experiment we did was the one testing whether it really is dermal calcium loss that is the primary trigger of this. So, our experiment was done in a metabolic chamber where we could control the temperature. We picked a a warm temperature and a cool temperature, and I don't remember exactly what they were, but based on what was in the literature, that temperature difference, the warmer temperature should provoke a sweat response that was about 50% greater than in the cool condition. And in fact, that's exactly what we saw. Um, The sweat rate, the estimated sweat volume was twice as high during the warm condition than the cool condition. So this was 60 minutes Mm -hmm. of relatively vigorous cycling at about 75 to 80% of maximal heart rate. Um, So we had a group of um, men and women, 20 to 40 years of age, I think sample size was about 24, who did two identical exercise bouts, one in a warm condition, one in a cool condition and the um, primary endpoints for this were the decrease in, in serum ionized calcium, the free calcium in blood, increase in PTH, and increase in CTX. And all three of those oh, things sorry, happen. Can we
0: just um, say what CTX is?
1: Oh, just, CTX. Just in- yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the primary marker of, of uh, bone breakdown that we use. It's a a biomarker of bone resorption. And it's actually okay. um, one of the collagen fragments. So it is mm-hmm. an indicator of uh, bone resorption occurring in bone.
0: Okay, cool.
1: So we, we saw a decrease in serum calcium. We saw an increase in PTH and we saw an increase in CTX. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was surprising to me in this experiment is um, I think we were actually doing um, serum um, calcium measurements every 15 minutes in this experiment with a a handheld uh, point of care device, the iStat, where we can actually measure serum ionized calcium bedside. And I I was expecting that there would be this decrease in serum calcium. Um, I didn't know exactly when we would Mm -hmm. see it, because we had only done measurements and experiments before this, before and after an exercise bout. But we actually started to see the decline in serum calcium uh, 15 minutes into an exercise bout. 15? 15, yes. Wow, that's quick. Yes, it was much faster than I expected, which was the Mm -hmm. first indicator that it can't be dermal calcium loss. It can't be sweating. Mm -hmm that's provoking this. Mm. Because 15 minutes into exercise, they're sweating, but they haven't lost that much calcium um, through sweat. So that was the first hint that we were wrong mm. with that part of our experiment. Uh, the second indicator that we were wrong is that um, there were no differences in either the decrease in calcium, the mm. increase in PTH, or the increase in CTX with exercise between the warm and cool conditions. Um, But, I mean, everything else in our model was correct. It was just the first step that it was dermal calcium loss triggering this. That was wrong. A couple of important other things that we learned from that experiment. Um, First, PTH kept going up during exercise. It peaked about 15 minutes after exercise. And we had these people stay for one hour after they finished their one hour exercise bout. Mm -hmm. And at an hour after exercise, it looked like uh, PTH was already going down, but it looked like CTX was just hitting its peak. So that told us we needed to follow them a little longer to find out what was happening with bone resorption more persistently. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that we learned was that, you know, anytime you go and exercise, especially somewhat vigorously, there's a contraction of plasma volume. So anytime you see an increase in any of the the solid constituents uh, in the vascular space, We always correct for plasma volume shifts Mm -hmm. to know whether that's a true increase in uh, the content of that constituent or not. So we adjusted for plasma volume uh, contraction um, and didn't really see any change, any differences Mm -hmm. in the results for PTH or CTX. But it was a remarkable effect on what happened with serum calcium. So, we, we knew that serum calcium was going down. Actually, we see a, a small blip an increase in the first five minutes, but that's due to the contraction of plasma volume. And after that, <clears throat> calcium was decreasing. When we adjusted for that uh, decrease in plasma volume, the change in serum ionized calcium was profound. Within the first 15 minutes of exercise, there is a one milligram per deciliter decrease in serum-ionized calcium content. That means you know, about half of calcium in, in blood is bound, half is is ionized calcium unbound. So about you know four and a half milligrams per deciliter. Oh that goes down to three and a half milligrams per deciliter. So it's like a
0: quarter almost. Yeah, well. Oh,
1: yeah, then. 20 to 25% of this oh, unbound calcium is leaving the vascular space.
0: Sorry, and how quick was that?
1: That's in the first 15 minutes of oh, exercise. Wow. Yes. Yeah, that's... I thought this was a new discovery. I, I certainly had never been aware. That's that new to this me anyway. Happened. Yeah. Um, but then I started looking at the literature. And I found a paper, I think from the 1980s uh, from, uh, I I think it's a Hungarian group, Baseda. And they reported almost exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. One milligram per per deciliter decrease, maybe with an hour of exercise or 30 minutes. And then I looked back a little bit further and I found a paper from Vic Convertino Uh, back in the 1970s. And he had reported this decrease in serum ionized calcium content. And going back a little further, John Greenleaf had reported this. It was not (laughs) a new observation, but it certainly was just, you know, there were just these sporadic papers. Nobody had ever followed through on this. So this was um, in our next experiment, we wanted to find out um, if the decrease in serum ionized calcium, without knowing where it's going, if that was really the trigger for the rest of the metabolic cascade that we we were seeing. So we wanted to design an experiment where we could prevent the the decline in serum calcium during exercise. And we had already done some oral calcium supplementation before exercise that that is somewhat effective, but not fully effective. So we decided to develop a calcium clamp where we would infuse calcium gluconate intravenously. We started the, the infusion about 15 minutes before exercise so we could actually raise the serum ionized calcium level, we wanted to get an increase of about 0.2 milligrams per deciliter, um, just so we had a cushion. We didn't want it to decrease below the Mm pre-exercise ionized calcium level. And then using this handheld uh, point of care device that we had, we measured serum serum ionized calcium every five minutes, and we'd adjust the infusion rate to make sure that serum Mm -hmm. calcium didn't decrease. Um, We were successful in developing that that clamp method. Um, We prevented a decrease in serum ionized calcium in all of the participants we did. I think there were 12 men in this study, young men. And for the control condition, we knew that volume uh, could affect some of the outcomes we were interested in. So we always did the calcium clamp first. And then we did a volume-matched Control day, where we infused half normal saline at the same rates, changes same at the os- same time. same as, it? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, prop close, not exact, but close. Uh-huh. Thank you. So we thought it was the best control condition that mm-hmm. we we could develop for this this uh, experiment. So we had um, clamp and uh, control conditions, and with our control condition. We saw exactly what we had seen in our first thermal experiment. Initial small increase in serum ionized calcium and then a steady decline. We saw um, as soon as ionized calcium started to decrease, PTH went up. As soon as PTH started going up, CTX started going up. Mm -hmm. They both peaked at about the same time. PTH peaked about 15 minutes after exercise, and then Mm -hmm. came screaming Mm -hmm. back down to baseline by an hour after exercise. This experiment, we followed people for four hours of recovery. Um, CTX increased about one hour after exercise, but it plateaued. At four hours after exercise, there was no hint that it was starting to come back down. we considered whether uh, ctx just has a a long half-life so Mm -hmm. not being cleared yet and i've only been able to find one paper on this but i think the half-life of ctx is only one hour so it should have been coming back down that
0: suggests there's continued breakdown even
1: after it does one other factor Mm -hmm. we considered is whether um, renal clearance might be impaired by the exercise Mm -hmm. so i consulted some renal experts here in Colorado who do exercise research. And they said, no, this this one hour of exercise shouldn't have an effect on clearance. So we don't think that was it, which means it was continued increased rate of bone resorption. And I still don't know how that happens. Um, It happens very quickly, 15 minutes into exercise The rate of resorption is increasing and producing more of this byproduct, CTX, this collagen fragment that indicates the rate of resorption has increased, and I don't think anyone is studying how the rate of resorption can be acutely increased in bone, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important because... For those of you who might be listening to this, who know anything about bone metabolism, there's typically a coupling of resorptive activity with formation activity. And this happens over several months of a bone resorption or bone remodeling cycle where the bone resorbing cells, the osteoclasts come in first, they do their job And then the bone forming cells come in weeks later, these are osteoblasts and start laying down the matrix to replace that bone that has been chewed away. So if during this cycle, the rate of of resorption that is being controlled by the osteoclasts, I don't know if there's any way to ensure that if that's accelerated, that there's a way to appropriately couple that with increased formation rate later. I don't think we have any knowledge of whether that might happen or how it happens. So this this was uh, very eye-opening for us that bone responds much more quickly than I think anybody had anticipated, Mm -hmm. at least clinical scientists. Um, that the catabolic response was much more profound than I certainly expected. And we still don't know um, how long that acute increase in catabolism persists. We're doing those experiments now, but we don't have an answer.
0: That's really interesting. Can I ask, is it this is cycling? Is it the same? Do you get the same with running because you know you tend to, as you indicated cyclists on carrying their body weight much. Right. Especially, right. I know professional cyclists, they ride for like five or six hours and then they, they wanna lay on the couch. Yeah, they, they, they avoid to, they weight recover. bearing
1: activity. <laughs> exactly.
0: So what about if you do running? Is it a similar thing or?
1: Well, a great setup question, uh, Glenn. It's like- Oh, we sorry, planned I didn't mean to say well. Well, It's like we planned it. We didn't, oh, okay. but mm-hmm. at that point, we had done most of our experiments in young adults Uh, pretty highly trained um, and all cycling. So we decided to go to the other end of the extreme and we decided to do treadmill exercise in older adults um, and um, not necessarily master athletes. These are just people who were accustomed to walking for an hour. Mm -hmm. So we repeated our calcium clamp exercise with 60 plus year olds walking on the treadmill for an hour at uh, 75 to 80% of their maximal heart rate. So similar type of stress in terms of duration and intensity of exercise, just changed the mode, just changed the population we were looking at this in. And, you know, when we've written grants and manuscripts, people still think that, oh, this is still, you know, vigorous exercise that applies only to master athletes, not the average person. Mm -hmm. But getting an older adult to a heart rate that's 75 to 80% of of their max, that was an average walking speed of 3.6 miles per hour, 0% grade. This is not superhuman levels of exercise. Mm -hmm. It's what many older adults engage in. So it's it's pretty typical, even though it's, it's brisk walking. Um, and we saw exactly the same responses with the calcium clamp study as um, in our mm-hmm. younger adult study. And I don't think I actually said this, our calcium clamp prevented 80% of the oh. increases in PTH and CTX. So it was the definitive evidence that it really is the initial disruption in calcium homeostasis that is the trigger for the catabolic response okay. that's generated in bone.
0: So to, so to bring that together, make sure everyone's on the page there. So you're saying that the initial drop in calcium in the first 15 minutes that causes the PDH increase and the bone breakdown that you're your measuring with CTX, if you prevent that reduction in calcium the, and you don't get the increase in PDH, and you don't get the bone breakdown.
1: Exactly. We prevent okay, you're 80% saying... of it. There's still a small oh, okay. increase in resorption. And um, based on some, some studies in the literature, some studies that were done in, in dogs, and in beagles, um, where they controlled the state of metabolic acidosis, it does look like metabolic acidosis per se can trigger an increase in PTH. So because we were doing vigorous exercise um, in one of our experiments, we did measure lactate, we do see an increase. So we think that that is what's responsible for the small increase that we saw during the calcium clamp condition when we prevented the the decrease in serum calcium.
0: Okay, and are you saying you don't actually know where the calcium's going still?
1: We don't, um, you know. I initially talked to some muscle biologists here at Colorado, um, and they thought, no, it it can't be going to muscle because muscle calcium levels are regulated too tightly. But I've 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 done some reading, and this this is a difficult area for for me to try to drill down mm-hmm. into because if you if you do a PubMed search putting in Calcium exercise and muscle, you know, you get thousands and oh, thousands of hits, yeah. but what I've seen, um, probably over the last 10 years or so is that there's, there are more people, uh, talking about m- mitochondrial calcium homeostasis. Mm-hmm. So my current thought, my current hypothesis is that calcium um, is regulated. Calcium homeostasis is regulated on two levels. We know that it's regulated systemically because if serum calcium decreases, you get the, an immediate increase in PTH. So that's, that's a clear level of regulation. But my thought is that there may also be a regulation at the mitochondrial level. And I you know, I don't know a lot of the molecular biology of how this happens, only you know, what I've what I've read and what I can digest of um, these molecular pathways. But calcium isn't metabolized. It's recycled. It's a mineral, but it's recycled across the mitochondrial matrix. So my thought is that when, um, when exercise starts and we have to increase our rate of energy production, um, so if it's with vigorous exercise, that's a fairly uh, substantial increase in the rate of energy production, that the rate of, of psych- recycling of calcium has to increase uh, at the level of the mitochondria. And if that rate is increasing, the um, I don't know what the signaling, what the, what the receptor is, um, what would be sensing this, but I think there would be a sensing that we need to bring more calcium in to sustain this higher rate of recycling. So my thought is that there's a pull of calcium into the mm-hmm. mitochondrial space coming from serum calcium, knowing that we need it here there are regulatory mechanisms at the systemic level that can make sure that serum mm-hmm. calcium is not gonna to decrease to a harmful level.
0: So, I think so it makes sense. Are there calcium transport? I, don't, I guess I've never come thought about that. Are there calcium is transporters in muscle?
1: Uh, don't ask me those questions. There are, oh, there, there, are at least, there are at least there is, um, yeah. uh, um, channels. Transport channels.
0: Ah, oh, oh, that's yeah. true. That's true. You know yeah. what I was thinking about? Because I can't, you know, because I've done a lot of glucose metabolism stuff and you've, you know, started in John Halossi's lab. So when you're talking about clamping calcium, I can't help thinking about clamping glucose, which, you know, we've done in, with insulin, et cetera, but also glucose tracer studies, which I've done. So have any, has anyone done glucose tracer studies in, in animals or humans and then seen where the actual, cal- oh, sorry, calcium tracer studies in humans or animals and actually seeing what's happening to calcium appearance, calcium disappearance, and you know, does it end up in muscle,
1: for example? We're getting ready to publish our, our calcium isotope paper. Oh, uh, okay. We, we did a very similar experiment. We, I think we went back to cycling for this experiment um, just because of a little less movement, easier to control some things. So the model for this experiment was we we wanted to give uh, two different calcium isotopes. So we used calcium 42 and calcium 44. And I don't remember which one for which, which path, but we gave one orally. So we had, um, and and we, we did two different, um, two different calcium supplementation doses through a meal. So four hours before an exercise bout. Uh, participants, and each participant did both conditions, had a calcium enriched meal. And I think that was a thousand milligrams of calcium in that meal or a low calcium meal. And I think that was 200 milligrams. And to both of those, we added 15 milligrams of the calcium isotope. Mm -hmm. So that enabled us to look at the appearance of that tracer in the bloodstream as an index of calcium absorption from the gut. And that we did that four hours before because we wanted to know when we would start seeing the appearance of this calcium, how long it took Mm -hmm. to get into the small intestine where most calcium absorption occurs. And um, so about two hours before exercise, we started seeing an increase in that in isotope enrichment. We also then gave an intravenous uh, calcium isotope so that we could look at the calcium kinetics, the rate of turnover, the rate of mm-hmm. appearance, the mm-hmm. rate of disappearance. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more, cal- uh, more complicated than a typical glucose kinetic model because calcium's coming from multiple places but um, basically what we saw um, is that the rate of, of calcium absorption can go up dramatically during exercise. You know, 40 years ago in my exercise physiology course in, in grad school, I learned that blood flow to the gut went down during exercise, so you really didn't absorb many nutrients during exercise. But I think our paper will show that at least for calcium, when there's a need for it, we have the capacity to increase calcium absorption substantially during exercise. Um, And that uh, the higher calcium load, so a thousand milligrams uh, of calcium before exercise, increases the amount of calcium compared to a low calcium condition. Mm -hmm. So I think that provides us with the evidence that calcium supplementation before exercise, if we determine we want to prevent the increase in Mm -hmm. PTH and the increase in CTX, then Mm -hmm. using calcium supplementation before exercise may be somewhat effective in doing so.
0: I think I thought early on though, you said that the in, in, you know, you said you tried calcium, um, you know, supplementation during exercise and it didn't have much effect. So.
1: It's not as effective as doing an IV infusion. Uh, oh, and fair, prevent- enough too. fair enough. It's yeah. also just just taking in calcium during the exercise is not effective. So it needs to get down into the small intestine where Mm -hmm. it can be absorbed. So we think that the the window of time, you know, things go through the small intestine pretty quickly once they get there. So we think the window of time is probably an hour to two hours before exercise. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to take a a calcium supplement or have a calcium um, enriched snack of some Mm -hmm. type, Um, If you can continue to take calcium, then during exercise, we've shown that that's ideal, but that's, that's not really practical, you know, calcium is difficult to get into solution. That's why many of the sports drinks have very little, if any, calcium Mm. in them. And the drinks that do tend to have a higher calcium may not be very palatable during exercise. I don't think people like to drink milk while they're exercising. Um, So there are some practical challenges there.
0: That's interesting. So so again, just back to the, so, you know, when you, I said, what about if you do running? So you ended up having older people doing walking, but I guess that's still not much, you know, sort of stress on the bones Has anyone done running, running, running? You know, like young people that can actually smash it down on a treadmill?
1: Yeah, we have not. But um, Mm -hmm. the group in the UK, Craig Sales Group, has done Mm -hmm. running. Uh, They see similar responses that we see. Um, They do a correction. They don't do a plasma volume correction. They do another albumin-related correction for serum Mm -hmm. calcium that I think is... um, uh, is counteractive to, to what the effects of plasma volume contraction are on serum calcium. So we, we, it might look like we have slightly different results, but I actually think we see very consistent, um, uh, responses. I
0: can't help thinking that the last person I put up on the podcast is David Costell. So when you're talking about plasma volume, You know, that was something we always did at Paul State was with exercise, we'd do the plasma volume correction, the dual and costal. Yeah. Um, Is that what you're doing? So with hemoglobin and hematocrit changes?
1: Actually, um, we did some initial experiments, you know, just one or two studies where we did both hemoglobin and hematocrit, but at least in in those studies we were doing then using hematocrit only in the von Beaumont uh, equation. Gave us very similar results, and we did that just for cost effectiveness. Um, the mm-hmm. grant that we had, we, we we were running out of money. Um, but um, based on you know, I've read the the Dylan Costel papers, um, and by using hematocrit only, if anything, I think we are underestimating the magnitude of plasma volume contraction, which means we're underestimating the magnitude of of calcium loss from the vascular space so it could be even um, more robust than the extremely robust response that we see.
0: So so at the moment anyone could be forgiven to, to thinking well exercise is bad for bone. But have we got that all wrong that that bone help, uh, exercise helps maintain bone mass or
1: yeah, here's where it gets a little stickier, a little bit more complicated. So PTH is an unusual hormone, and I don't know who discovered this initially because it must've been a scientist who was extremely stubborn and married to um, a hypothesis, but PTH actually has paradoxical actions on bone. If it's elevated chronically, like in primary or secondary hyperparathyroidism, people who have that, condition almost always develop osteoporosis. So chronically elevated PTH is toxic to bone. Mm -hmm. But if the increase in PTH is transient, Mm -hmm. it is then anabolic to bone. And I don't know of any uh, studies in humans, but in animal studies, the critical factor seems to be the duration of time PTH is elevated. So if it is elevated longer than four to five hours, that seems to be when it transitions from being anabolic to catabolic. Mm So, The increase in PTH that we see with exercise is definitely transient. You know, we've done an hour of exercise. It's elevated all that time, but it comes back down to baseline within another hour. So it's elevated about two hours. It should be anabolic. Um, We haven't, I think we've published one study on this, but you really have to do a training study given the nature of how resorption and formation are coupled in bone. Mm -hmm. If we cause an increase in resorption at this point in time, we may not see the increase in formation until weeks down the road. Mm -hmm. If so, I I should back up here. Um, PTH is so effective when it's increased transiently at turning on bone formation, that there are actually two FDA-approved medications that are PTH analogs that are used to treat osteoporosis. So those are teriparatide and abaloparatide. PTH. A
0: transient increase in PTH, okay.
1: Yes, so uh, daily uh, injection. Uh, to cause a transient increase in PTH signaling. And to give you an idea of just how anabolic those drugs are over a 12 week period of time. So daily injection of teriparatide, 20 micrograms a day. um, The the biomarker of bone formation that we measure in blood is P1NP, another one of these uh, fragments of bone metabolism. Over 12 weeks, um, there is an increase in P1NP of 150% in response to teriparatide. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've, I've looked in the literature to find exercise intervention studies that are also 12 weeks in duration where they measured P1NP before and after training. I think I found five studies and four of, all five have measured P1NP. Four of the five actually did see an increase mm-hmm. in P1NP, but the magnitude was maybe 5% as compared okay. to 150% percent mm-hmm. with um, pharmacologic increases in PTH through teriparatide. So I don't know why, a pharmacologic intervention that increases PTH signaling would be much more anabolic than a physiologic increase in PTH, exercise induced increase. But at least at, at this point in time, they seem to generate very different responses, with the catabolic effects of PTH in bone being predominant. Um, with exercise. We're doing what I think will be the definitive experiment to prove that or disprove it right now. So hopefully we'll have an answer in about a year.
0: So so maybe that that, that was my next, next question. So so I guess what you're saying then is is people that ride five hours a day, so Tour de France type people, are going to be losing bone, which has been shown as you see by Dexa. But people shouldn't be afraid to, you know, psych one hour a day, you know, which is what most people do because they'd be getting the transient changes in PDH And has that actually been shown or?
1: <laughs> you know, I've bared my soul to a lot of people, uh, given what we've learned over the last few years. I, I, I feel professionally conflicted right now, recommending Exercise for bone health, knowing what I know about how exercise can turn on bone catabolism. My thought is that the the we know that bone, the acute the acute response of bone can be both catabolic and anabolic. I mean, we also have a wealth of of evidence that bone formation can be turned on acutely by exercise. So both of these competing processes can be turned on. So I think the net effect of of exercise over time on bone is going to be the, the synthesis of how these two opposing processes are being turned on. So, I would think that if you're doing a weight supported exercise like cycling or swimming, that may not turn on bone formation as effectively as a weight supported or a weight bearing exercise, and you're getting this catabolic effect, that might be a condition where over time you could lose bone or at least not gain bone. Um, There might be a neutral effect or a harmful effect. If you're doing weight-bearing exercise, maybe that's generating enough of an anabolic signal to counteract the catabolic signal. Um, So then those individuals could end up having the small increases in bone mineral density that we tend to see in response to weight-bearing exercise interventions. There are never dramatic increases in bone. They tend to be small. And I think it's because of these competing catabolic and anabolic pathways getting, getting activated. And then there's one more factor here. It, it's still possible that the increase in PTH is anabolic. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing what I think is the, is the definitive experiment now so I don't want to rule that out yet, even though I don't think the available evidence points to it being a strong anabolic factor, but I think we have to entertain that, just knowing that transient increases in PTH signaling induced by pharmacologics is very anabolic to bone.
0: You're not going to tell us the, the definitive study you're doing now, Well, it sounds it's okay.
1: I can tell you that we're, we are, we're doing, um, you know, most of our work in this area has been with just one or two bouts of exercise. So we're now doing a study um, with 16 bouts of exercise, ideally over four weeks. So we're, we're enro- this is a VA funded study. So we're enrolling veterans. Um, and uh, ideally they will do four exercise bouts a week for four weeks. We'll be looking at uh, the profile of increases in or changes in both um, in PTH, CTX, the resorption biomarker, and P1NP, the formation marker. So we'll do it, be doing this phenotypic profiling with the first exercise bout, the eighth exercise bout, and the 16th exercise bout. The first thing we want to show is that the catabolic response occurs after each of these and that it remains robust. We do not think this is something that goes away with training. We think that this response is there to protect serum calcium, to prevent it Mm -hmm. from decreasing to harmful levels. So we'll show that the increase in CTX occurs repeatedly. So that that catabolic effect that we've shown occurs in young and old, men, women, trained, untrained, cycling, treadmill, it's always there. Mm -hmm. That will be the indication of its catabolic um, um, potential. The other thing we're gonna look at is the increase in uh, pre-exercise P1NP across these uh, four weeks because I told you about the increase in P1NP in response to 12 weeks of teriparatide therapy, but just, just 28 days of teriparatide generates an increase in P1NP of almost 100%. Um, I, our hypothesis is that the increase in P1NP with four weeks of exercise is only gonna be about 5% much less than what we would expect to teriparatide, And we are going to uh, submit a grant where we do a head-to-head comparison of teriparatide and exercise in the same type of cohort, young adults, so that we can do a direct comparison of how pharmacologic versus physiologic mm-hmm. PTH affects bone metabolism, but that's down the road a ways.
0: Okay. So that's very interesting. I, I spoke to you briefly before we started that um, I, I had, had I've done a little bit. So bringing a glucose metabolism in the bone together with the um, it's a guy called Itamar Levinger, Victoria University. We looked at um, exercise, osteocalcin, and glucose metabolism. So I, I guess without getting into that too much, is there is there other other effects of bone? So the markers that, that are released that aren't simply markers are they actually doing anything or do, do we know know that do they have it because you know there's a lot of crosstalk that we think about now with muscle talking to liver and as uh, bone talking to muscle or maybe it's maybe it's calcium is talking to the muscle who knows
1: you know I, I I think of we're probably in a situation with bone that we were in with adipose tissue you know 30 years ago we we mm-hmm. thought adipose tissue was an inert um, tissue that it's just store stored fat, fat.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, and we know that's not the case. And mm-hmm. we used to think that bone was relatively inert, did not respond like very quickly to, to anything. It was primarily, like... just a storage uh, organ. We used to talk about it like chalk. You know, you break it. Yeah, bones, but... exactly. And I, I think exactly. we're learning now that it is much more dynamic um, than than at least I thought it was. You know, it, it can respond in 10 minutes to the the onset of exercise. And that some of the um, factors that might be produced in bone like osteocalcin might have effects in um, adjacent tissues like muscle. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly Gerard Carcenti has has shown that that's a, a possibility. I would like to see that work translated to humans I'm not going to be the one to do that. So I hope uh, mm-hmm. hope somebody takes that challenge on.
0: So is it fair to say, because I, I remember um with with Bone, there was always the talk that the main thing was to get up get a high peak bone mass. So, you know, during childhood and up to early 20s, etc. And then that was much more important for your lifetime bone mass. And then exercise might be just tweaking around. Is that is that fair to say that's still the way people are thinking or?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's the general model. Um, you know, we end up losing bone. Um, we used to refer to type one and type two osteoporosis. So what we see in women is, well, let's start with just uh, children and adults. During childhood, you accrue bone as the skeleton is developing. So you get to your peak bone mass, uh, girls probably hit that sooner than boys do. Maybe um, by late teens, early, early 20s, um, women have hit their peak bone mass. Men, it might be delayed a little bit, a few more years. But, you know, that kind of determines where your aging loss uh, trajectory starts from. And. I think there's some evidence that you may be able to maintain that peak bone mass um, into potentially the fifth decade, so till you get up to about age 50. At that point in women with uh, the menopause transition, the lo- estrogen has an extremely mm-hmm. potent effect on bone metabolism. So the loss of ovarian estrogens. Even though there are other estrogens still in the system, that loss of ovarian estradiol production causes an accelerated rate of bone loss that really um, persists for for quite a while. But um, there's also age-related bone loss, much like there is muscle-related bone loss. And for anybody working in in aging research, you know, I I refer to primary versus secondary effects of aging. Primary aging effects are those that are inevitable. They happen in everyone, they can't be avoided. And I actually use the menopause as a great example of a primary aging event in women. Uh, It happens at about the same age, plus or minus, you know, five years. Um, It can't be avoided. It is an aging event. But there are other aging factors, probably primary aging, that contribute to the loss of muscle and bone and other loss of function. Um, Some of the rate of decline in bone mineral density that we see in the general population is probably related to secondary factors of aging. We tend to become less active as as we get older. Um, and whether that's primary aging or secondary aging, whether we could avoid it or not, I think remains debatable. Um, so there are a lot of factors that are influencing the rate at which we lose bone, um, but where you start from is a key factor. Mm-hmm. So bone mass. And what about is what about
0: calcium? I managed to crash my, my bike, bicycle, and break my neck of femur, which wasn't much fun. And um, the person that, that um, I was collaborating with at the time, the osteocalcin stuff, he's he's like a, a major person on the Osteoporosis Council, the World Osteoporosis Council. He looked at the DEXA and said, you must have low bone mass. And, and I do have quite low bone mass. Anyway, he wasn't very happy because he prescribed me calcium. He told me to have calcium and vitamin D. And I don't like taking I don't like taking things. I just don't even calcium and vitamin D. He wasn't very happy with it when we did a follow-up and I hadn't, I hadn't taken anything. So. Anyway, the point is, how
1: much does that actually have an effect?
0: Um, calcium and vitamin D, and taking your life.
1: My position on this is that you need to have the building blocks there, so you have to have mm-hmm. adequate calcium because calcium is one of the building blocks for bone. So, you know, people who are active, um, exercise will cause micro damage in bone that needs to be repaired. And even if you didn't do that, the bone, the skeleton is always um, in a state Mm -hmm. where about 10% of it is undergoing resorption. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you turn over your calcium, your skeleton maybe every 10 years. So you have to make sure you have adequate calcium to allow Mm -hmm. that process to um, proceed optimally. Um, But just taking in more calcium doesn't necessarily mean you will build more bone, Mm -hmm. So it has to be adequate and the adequate vitamin D is necessary because that's important for calcium absorption. So Mm -hmm. those are the two nutrients that are viewed as being um, critical to make sure they are sufficient to support the the metabolic bone environment.
0: Yeah, It's a funny, I don't know if I've got this wrong, but I remember I did nutrition during my undergrad and there was talk about how when they give the recommended daily intakes, which is what we call in Australia, I think. Is it the same? US uh, 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 recommended, RDAs recommended RDAs. daily
1: allowance, I think.
0: There you go. They actually build in two standard deviations above what they think you need to make sure they cover, you know, 95% of people, or whatever. And as soon as I heard that, that's probably had an effect on me. I was like, almost by definition, you've got to have a lot of people that are below that because you've built in that big safety factor, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I'm sure it's not really the brief to talk about, but I know there's been some controversy about calcium, what calcium levels people should have and and, and whatever. So anyway, I, I got in trouble for not taking it. But strangely enough, when I did have my next X-ray, I'd gone from osteoporosis in my l four and L5 um, to osteopenia. So <laughs> it might have just been the measurement error. Um, yeah, well, this has been very interesting. Um, I guess I'm still slightly confused. So uh, you, know, you said you're not that sure and in two minds about recommending exercise, but but overall, when you look at DEXs without looking at you know CTX and things like that, when you look at DEXs of people that exercise their whole lives, for example, do they tend to have higher bone mass? But well, I guess it's cross-sectional. You don't really know. Um, you know you'd have to have a, like a long, you know, twenty-year study or something. Or yeah, even just it, epidemiological studies.
1: Yeah. It it it's. Those observational studies, you know, always have to, you know, uh, consider that they are observational; uh, can't confer cause and effect. But certain groups of athletes um, or people who participate in certain types of exercise do tend to have higher uh, bone mineral density. the The um, best type of activities seem to be those that involve jumping, sprinting, um, weightlifting. So gymnasts, probably because of you know the, the mm-hmm. impact forces that they generate when landing uh, um, from a vault or something. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball, volleyball players. So people who do more of a variety of types of movements um, mm-hmm. seem to have higher BMD. But I will tell you, there's one study that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, I think back in the 1990s, that was of NCAA basketball players. This is the one of the studies we cite to support our work that followed basketball players initially over a year. And much like our study of competitive road cyclists, They didn't measure BMD, but they measured BMC, bone mineral content, total body bone mineral content. That decreased by 6% over Mm -hmm. one year in NCAA Division I basketball players. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, after they had seen that, they decided to follow them another year. And for that second year, they had them increase their calcium intake because they had measured dermal calcium loss and shown mm-hmm. that it was very high in these, in these basketball players. So they were kind of working on the same hypothesis mm-hmm. that we were. And what I think is important about that study, because they did show that total body bone mineral content reversed the second year. They didn't get all the way back up to where they had started but they at least had a small increase rather than a decrease. What I think was critical in that study is they actually found a way to get calcium into solution. And they had them, uh, in addition to taking a calcium supplement at home, they had them drinking a calcium enriched beverage during practices and before games. And I think that's critical because it would suggest that they were getting calcium in to the right place where it need where it could be absorbed during the time when calcium homeostasis is disrupted during vigorous exercise. So I, you know, I think that study um, supports our scientific premise. That the disruption of calcium homeostasis during exercise can be an important determinant of how bo- bone responds acutely to exercise, and probably also how it adapts over time.
0: Okay, so so maybe in a knucklehead, not not really supplementing calcium. Are you suggesting people should actually maybe supplement calcium, especially if they're doing prolonged sort of endurance exercise, or?
1: I'm not ready to make that recommendation yet. Just be, we've gotta know whether that increase in PTH is generating an al- anabolic signal or just a catabolic signal. We know it's generating the catabolic signal but I think the jury is still out um, even though I don't think the evidence points there. I wanna finish our current study and make sure that um, it is not having more of an anabolic effect than I expect.
0: Okay. And is it fair to say, as you, as you said, studies like gymnastics, et cetera, uh, activities like gymnastics, when you do have that high high forces, it does seem to increase bone mass.
1: Yeah, we know, we know that that turns on bone formation. mm -hmm. You know, that that will happen regardless of what's happening on the resorption side with the acute catabolic effect.
0: And that's a local thing. So for example, if you're jumping up and down, on the spot, you will have increased bone mass in your legs, but not in your arms. It's not like a systemic effect. It's the it's the actual force on the on the bone.
1: Predominantly, yes. I, there there might be some um, factors that can affect bone metabolism systemically, but I think they're they're small compared to the local effect of mechanical stress.
0: Great. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. I just thought if. if Um, because I know you've been doing a lot of work on this uh, motor, motor pack. Yeah. Did you want to just talk a little bit about your role on that and and what it's about? Scott Trappi talked about that as well. I think it's amazing. You know, we're fighting, you know, all of us are fighting for for scarce dollars and you guys managed to, to get that going in in the U S for a while now. And I'm sure you're still fighting for scarce dollars, but that's a great injection from the NIH. It
1: is. So motor pack, the molecular, transducers of physical activity consortium um, is the premise for this. um, And this is an NIH common fund initiative, which means it's across all the institutes and centers actually comes from the director's office. So uh, common fund projects are not designed to uh, test a hypothesis. They are designed to deliver a product. Our Product that we're going to deliver to the scientific community is going to be this compendium of molecular factors that are up or down regulated in response to acute exercise and how they change with exercise training. So MotorPack has uh, clinical sites. We've got six clinical centers, nine clinical sites around the U.S., We have animal study sites, preclinical sites. Those um, are doing studies in rodents. Um, We have a coordinating center that is managing all of our, our data capture and biospecimens and delivering those to all of the omics labs. We refer to them as the CAS, the chemical analysis sites where they're doing genomics, epigenomics, Uh, Proteomics, transcriptomics, Mm -hmm. metabolomics, lipidomics, exosomics, you know, just this wide panoply uh, of um, omics platforms. And then we also have a bioinformatics uh, center at Stanford that's gonna be responsible for creating the interface for the scientific community and even citizen scientists to eventually be able to use all of the motor pack data that are generated, so the cl- I'm a clinical site PI, clinical center PI in Colorado, but I also have the privilege of being the chair of the steering committee and the executive steering committee for the consortium, and um, I can I can tell you that. Um, The entire consortium is doing a remarkable job. This is going to be an extremely valuable data set that we deliver to to Mm -hmm. the scientific community. For the human studies, we are uh, getting blood, muscle, and adipose tissue uh, before, blood during, not tissues during, and after exercise um, that we then send out for this um, array of OMIC analyses. So we're, we're literally gonna be generating tens of thousands of data points, I think, mm-hmm. for each individual. The goal is to uh, enroll two different cohorts of, of humans. Um, <clears throat> we have, um, let's see. I, I don't ever remember if I include the kids in this. I think we're gonna be enrolling over 2000 humans. We have one clinical center that's focused on pediatrics. So we actually have seven clinical centers, one pediatric, six adult. Pediatric site is at UC Irvine. They're doing only endurance exercise, not resistance, but the adult centers are doing both endurance and resistance. So we're all enrolling two cohorts, one cohort will already be highly active. They can be athletes or they can be lifelong exercisers that are doing predominantly either endurance or resistance exercise. The other larger cohort that we're assembling are um, more sedentary individuals who have not been doing regular exercise for an extended period of time. They come in, we do a lot of phenotyping at baseline, we do an acute exercise test, I'll tell you more about that in a moment, and then they go through 12 weeks of training, either endurance, resistance, we've got a small no exercise control group, and then they repeat all the phenotyping at the end. Our acute exercise exposure is either um, eight resistance exercises, total body, um, three sets of eight to twelve repetitions, um, and um, after they do that, the leg press I think is the last exercise that they do. So they all have they all have blood collection and muscle and fat biopsy before the acute test, and then they're randomized to get their post exercise biopsies either shortly after that exercise bout. <coughs> within about 30 minutes, or they're in what we call the mid-group where they wait four hours in the lab and have it three and a half to Mm -hmm. four hours later, or they go home and come back 24 hours later. So we're uh, developing this temporal profile of how Mm -hmm. all of the omics um, responses um, occur Mm -hmm. after exercise. Our, Our highly active group actually gets hit with a lot of biopsies. They have muscle biopsies before, 30 minutes after, three and a half hours after, and 24 hours after their exercise bouts. But they don't have to come back and repeat that after 12 weeks of training. We thought if we did that with our sedentary participants, we would lose a lot of volunteers Mm. who wouldn't want to go through that twice so they each only get two muscle and two fat biopsies before training, and then they repeat that after training. Okay.: So you know, I see the value of this for anybody interested in molecular signaling factors and exercise will have access to this enormous database to use this preliminary data um, to develop hypotheses. Um, The goal of this is to increase our understanding of the molecular mechanisms responsible for the health benefits of exercise, because we know very little about that. And one thing that I envision is that, you know, any new drug that comes to market now, most new drugs that come to market, they have to know what the mechanism is. They know what molecular uh, factors are being targeted by these drugs. So Glenn, if you are on hypertension drug A that we know hits molecular target X, and we now in motor pack show that um, exercise, either resistance or endurance, also targets uh, molecular factor X, Clinicians will now have more of an evidence base to know whether exercise can be an effective alternative therapeutic strategy to pharmacologic agents based on mechanisms of action.
0: Absolutely. And, and as 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 you would know, of course, that the, the effects of the drugs are nothing like as comprehensive as the exercise. So you take a drug that affects blood pressure, take a drug that affects this and that. The exercise is hitting, you know, hitting
1: all sorts of things. Yes, many benefits. To
0: convert all right, so how about, if I'd like to do like a bit of a takeaway message, a bit of a bottom line at the end um, about the effects of exercise on bone. I wonder if you can give us a few takeaway messages here.
1: Yeah, based on everything I've said, people might come away thinking that I believe exercise is not good for bone, and that's not the case at all. I think exercise or being physically active is absolutely essential to bone health because we know what happens with bed rest or with exposure to microgravity, the bone loss and the loss of bone integrity, bone strength is profound. So being physically active is essential. I think where um, we are as a a community, we referring to exercise physiologists and people interested in bone metabolism in general, I think we have to know much more about how to optimize the the bone response in a way that will make sure that we are enhancing and not causing a detrimental effect on bone. So we've gotta know much more about how these acute responses um, change over time, how uh, uh, different types of exercise might affect this in differential ways. We, we just need to really fine tune exercise prescriptions for bone health. And I'm just going to mention this because it's not my area of research, but you know there have been several studies, uh, observational studies, um, a handful of them now, showing that endurance athletes tend to have high coronary artery calcification scores. And I've talked to a few of my friends who are uh, cardiologists, but also exercise physiologists, Ben Levine, Bill Mm Kraus, Paul Thompson, and others about the possibility that this huge increase in calcium flux that we see out of the vascular space early in exercise, and then presumably coming back into the vascular space after exercise is finished, whether that could affect the calcification of atherosclerotic plaque and be a mechanistic cause for what's being observed in athletes. I mean, Ben Levine has uh, published an intriguing observational paper suggesting that this Horn, this calcified plaque, maybe benign, doesn't result in increased morbidity or mortality. I'd like to know a little bit more about that before I, you know, I think we need to, to study that more vigorously because it might not just, what we are observing might not affect just bone. I'm, I'm worried that mm-hmm. it might also be affecting the vasculature. So I just think it has, as science usually does, led to more questions than answers And we need a lot of people working in this area. So I hope other people get as enthused about this as I am that will carry this this research forward.
0: Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, it's been great. I've I've learned a lot. So thanks and
1: see you later. Thanks for the invitation, Glenn. It's been fun to talk about this with you.
0: Yeah. Okay. See you. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, Please like, subscribe pass it on to your friends and colleagues, check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.